Welcome to another edition of the Talking Heels podcast. I'm Nick Delahanty. The guy to my right is Jordan Falls. We told you last week we were going to be back to talk about it. The Tar Heels take down the Duke Blue Devils on Saturday night in Chapel Hill and follow it up with a clunker, losing a Clemson on their home floor. We got a lot to talk about. Let's just jump right into it. Jordan, first and foremost, how are you today? Especially a little bit of time after the Clemson loss. I'm doing good. Uh, I'm not concerned about the Clemson losses, but we'll get into that. But following the Duke win, big weekend, still staying in first place in the ACC. Tarles are doing good. I, I think we're in a good spot, and uh, it's been a good week. I'm I'm great. I'm glad to hear that you're great. Um, our special guest, Jax, is not here with us tonight. I thought he was going to make his first appearance on the show. Maybe he would give us some kind of, you know, wisdom, for especially the Clemson game. But, hey, you know, we're going to have to motor on without him. The Duke game. I think that when you look back at everything that happened on Saturday night in Chapel Hill, if you're the Tar Heels, you couldn't have scripted that game any better than how it went. Yeah, I think everything went in favor of Carolina. I mean, and the score showed it. The only thing you might would take away is Duke's efficiency from inside the paint. Uh, I think they ended, they ended up with 54 points in the paint. Outside of that, take that away and – it was truly a domination from uh, the Carolina side of things. And I, I think those points in the paint is a telltale sign of the emphasis Carolina put into the Duke game where limiting the Blue Devils from beyond the arc and running them off the three-point line. They did that very, they did a very good job of that. They held them to 26% shooting from three, five of 19. Duke has always been under K. They were like this and uh, Shire, they've kind of fell in that live by the three, die by the three. You don't want to lose that way. And Carolina went into that game with that mindset, and they kept him off the three-point line, which is, was ultimately the goal. And they limited Tyrese Proctor in doing so. So um, everything else went pretty well for Carolina. Duke did still shoot 50.7% from the field. They still scored 84 points. But you came out of that game feeling like Carolina played relatively good defense. Yeah, you really did. And Shire said it after the game, and I was a little – I'm not to say confused by it because he knows his players very well, but when he said they weren't ready to play, I didn't get that sense. I felt like they were ready to play. I just think that Carolina played better. And it's no knock on, you know, what he was saying because honestly, you know what? I thought Duke played a relatively good game. Most games in the ACC, you score 84 points, you're going to win the game. In this game, it was just that Carolina was a little bit better offensively. The one thing that people are not really talking much about is the decision that Hubert Davis made to start Cormac Ryan on Tyrese Proctor. And Proctor's been a guy that when he gets hot, Duke's been rolling. And he was not able to get anything going. And that was a huge, huge part of this game that, you know what, kind of doesn't show in the box score. But, you know, when you look at what Proctor did, Cormac got the job done. And then, you know what, they threw a lot of different looks at him as well. So you can't really just give the credit to Cormac. But for the most part, he's the one that slowed him down early and it, Paid off the rest of the way. It's kind of funny that Shire said his team wasn't ready to play when on Friday he got asked about the new guys playing the rivalry. He said, whether they're not played it, whether they played it or not, they're ready. And <laughs> about 36 hours later, he's like backtracking. They weren't ready to play. But I do think they Silly were ready John. to play. I, I do think they were ready to play. I thought I thought they did a good job. They had great game plan on how to defend RJ Davis. Uh we you just mentioned Cormac Ryan and Tyrese Proctor. 
Duke fans were very confident going into that game that Proctor, if, if Ryan was the guy guarding him, that Proctor was going to have a night. And the exact polar opposite happened. One of six for two points. Now, Proctor did amazing on RJ defensively. Proctor and Roach did a great job. I think Proctor spent the majority of the time on him, but those two did a great job face guarding RJ. If you would have told, uh, told any confident pregame, RJ's going to have four points. What's the halftime score going to be? I don't think anybody will have said we're going to be up 10. And that's a great nod at what this team can do. Even when RJ is taken out of the game, Harrison Ingram, Armando Baycott stepped up big time in the first half to get that 10-point lead. And then RJ did eventually come alive there and say half a little bit. But for the most part, I, you, you have to feel like Duke feels pretty good about how they defended RJ and Carolina's offense. Yeah, Duke's game plan was to shut down R.J. Davis. They were going to let anybody other than R.J. beat them in that game. And Shire even says it in the, if you watch back into that game and listen to his huddle, he says, we're doing a great job on Davis. Like, that was his emphasis right there. So Davis wasn't R.J. Davis in the first half. But Armando Baycott was Armando Baycott, and Harrison Ingram was Harrison Ingram. And they had no answer for either one of those guys. And it continued. And you know what? If you're Duke... I think you got to live with it and just be like, you know what? We, we didn't want their ACC player of the caliber year type of guy beating us, but we're going to take our chances with the other guys. And fortunately for Carolina, it paid off. Yeah, it's kind of like what, what we've been saying for the majority of the season. When is the team going to step up and say, number four is not going to beat us? And and it happened Saturday, or happened Saturday night in Chapel Hill. Duke was that team and said, four is not being us. Well, Carolina has a good team around number four. It's not just R.J. Davis. And I think a lot of people have questioned that to this point in the season. Is Carolina the number three team in the country? Is Carolina good enough to make a deep run to March if R.J. Davis is limited or has an off night? He had 17 points, and we're calling it an off night, which is kind of funny. But uh, And Carolina proved they, but Carolina proved they, can, they can win without R.J. Davis having a – 30-point night. He doesn't have to go for 30 and 30 points and eight assists for Carolina to win a game. And uh, the performance that Armando Baycott gave to Tarles on Saturday night needs to be a performance we get going forward. It does take this team to another level, and it spreads the floor. Then then teams really do have a, a real – they're in a real pickle, which is what we've seen, and me and you have been the biggest advocates for Baycott. Teams have been choosing to double and – Number five is not going to be – Baycott is not going to beat us tonight. And Duke went the other way on that. And everybody – all the Carolina fans are like, oh, Mondo's not having a good day or Mondo's not having a good year. It's because other teams are focused on him. Well, you saw that not happen in the Duke game. And Baycott was Baycott. Uh, and then he showed up in Clemson – in the Clemson game too. So um, – and Clemson took a little bit of that blueprint defending RJ, and we'll get into that. But it – uh Overall, from a Carolina perspective, is a great, great game. Uh, I felt great pregame that Carolina was going to win. We both uh, predicted Carolina win at home, and uh, it's always good to beat those guys. Absolutely. And when you're looking at that game, you got to look at Harrison Ingram. Did a little bit of everything, and he's just been that glue guy. Like when the Carolina needs a big bucket, it seems like he's the guy. Big rebound, getting a loose ball. We've talked about Ingram so much on the show and, and on keeping a heel. He's just been a game changer. And there's not many players that you could say out of the transfer portal have made as big of an impact as Harrison Ingram. Yeah, there might be better players. You know, we're not saying that Ingram is the best talented player.
player that came out of the transfer portal, but you have to put him up there as one of the most valuable transfers because look at what he's done for this Carolina team. It's just a, a difference when he's on the floor. And we'll talk about Clemson in a little bit, but when he came off the floor in that Clemson game, everything seemed to be a little bit different. It was like, okay, where's we need Harrison here. We know he's a little banged up, but you know, there's a guy we can't afford to lose. So, you know, you look at that, you look at that game from Armando Baker, like you said, he was phenomenal in that Duke game. Really had a, something to prove in that game. And, you know, you want to see that from him the rest of the year. But, again, for a guy like R.J. Davis, it's going to be simple down the stretch. He's going to have to learn that he's going to have to take his opportunities when they come. They might not come a lot. They might not come every possession down the floor. But now that teams are zeroing in on him, they're going to start turning the attention to have Carolina not get the offense running through him. They're going to go through number five. They're going to want Harrison to beat him. They're not going to let RJ Davis beat him. So until these other guys start contributing at a consistent level, RJ is going to really have to pick and choose his times to really take his opportunities. Yeah. Uh, going back to Harrison Ingram, I think he's entering uh Brady Manic. Cam Johnson transfer territory fan favorites uh in Chapel Hill. You agree? He's up there for me. I I listen, I love Cam. I do with all my heart. I, I love Cam, but Harrison, if Harrison stays another year, there's no oh, doubt in oh, my mind he's gonna be he's gonna be the top. Like I think you have to put Manic up there because Manic took us helped take us to the final four. And who doesn't love Brady Manic? Like the guy's just great, but I think if Harrison stays another year, it's over. Like, he'll be the top transfer. Yeah, we were – I wish we would have had another year of Brady by far. If you get another another year of Harrison, uh, yeah, it's might be game over He if he continues to play at the level he's doing. But he's the ultimate glue guy uh, for sure. He does everything, rebounding, scoring, finds an open man every now and then. It, it's great. But, yeah, you hit uh, you hit the nail on the head with RJ. He, he can't force. And uh, it felt like in the Clemson game – it. He was forcing a lot, and and not necessarily forcing, but and something made us not a force as much as the shots just weren't falling. And I mean, he took several jumpers and floater running floaters early in Clemson game that just didn't fall that he's made all year. So as a Carolina fan, you can't be mad at that, but you at the same time, if they're not falling after the first two or three, maybe let's get somebody else involved. But uh, at the same time. He's carried you this far. You you can't like hey like he he's earned the right to take those shots. Oh, absolutely. And you know what the thing is with RJ, nobody should ever question that kid's toughness. And like Roy Williams calls him a tough little nut. He is just a tough individual for somebody of that size playing against guys that are a lot bigger than him. He takes a lot of hits. And I said it when I was watching the game, the Clemson game with my family. R.J. Davis played, what, 36, 37 minutes against Duke? Harrison Ingram played, what, 38 minutes? You mean to tell me that two full days those guys aren't a little, you know, tired? That the legs aren't a little tired? And let's not forget, R.J. Davis's eye is like twice the size. He took a couple of hits in that game. So for R.J., I, I like you said, I don't know if it's forcing, but I think it's him trying to do a little too much. Because I know I feel like he knows, you know what, I'm the X Factor. I gotta be that guy. When in reality, I'd rather him really pick and choose his spots like he was early in the year and capitalizing on those attempts. Like scored 22 points against Clemson, 
22 shots to do it. So it, 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 there is a, a pick and choose there, but I'm not worried about RJ. I, I think RJ is going to be perfectly fine. He's too talented of a basketball player not to be. I just think it's one of those stretches where you got to give credit to the opposing defenses. They're really making his life difficult. He has to earn every single point he's getting. Yeah, I mean, it's taken to what we're we're through 11 conference games at this point. So it's or 12 conference games at this point. We're so we've taken it's taken us over half the ACC conference schedule for teams to say RJ's not going to beat us tonight, but now they're starting to do it. So Carolina has a little break right here, getting ready for Miami. They need to readjust, have a new game plan going forward. Hey, we know teams are going to take RJ out. So this is the alternative game plan. This is how we attack. This is how we get RJ off a screen and get him open. But the offense can't – we can't rely on the offense to go solely through RJ anymore. Everybody else has to step up. Cormac Ryan's in a bad slump. If Cormac can get out of this slump and start making shots, it's going to be hard for everybody to guard Ingram, Baycott, Ryan, and Davis. Right now they're they're focused on Baycott – or focused on Davis and then you have Baycott and Ingram. If you can add a third player in there that can score, it becomes very hard on opposing defenses. You know, to kind of go off of that Cormac Ryan part, I feel like we've been talking about him finding his shot for All the year. majority of the year. <laughs> and it just feels like it's so repetitive. And it's starting to get to that point where instead of saying if he could find his shot, the question is, will he find his shot? Because at this point, we're sitting here, we're like, that's the missing link. If he can get his shots going. Now, I, I do have a question, and I'm I'm going to save it for after we talk about Clemson in regards to Cormac Ryan. But we got to talk about Clemson. And it was one of those games where I think that going in, Carolina fans knew that it, there might be a little hangover. Let's remember, you beat Duke at home. The guys are celebrating on, on Franklin Street. They're enjoying themselves. They're college kids. I don't care how old the Duke fans say, oh, you know this. It is exciting. It is jaw-dropping. It, it, there's no words to describe that kind of win, especially on your home floor. Those guys are playing a lot of minutes. That's a very stressful and high-energy, high-paced game. And only two days to kind of rebound. Now, let's go through some of the timeline. Because we got a timeline from our good friend Armando Baycott. They practiced. They had off on Sunday, if I'm correct. That's uh, they they shot Sunday, but they did not have they didn't have an off day. They they did shoot around, but they didn't. They practice shot around, practice. but not not like a full yeah. practice. So yeah, correct. they shot around. Monday, they said they had a bad practice. They yep. said it was a, a, a extremely bad practice. They, they the word that was used was lackluster. From what I understand, um, Seth Trimble also got hurt in that practice, hustling for a loose ball. So if everybody else is lackluster and Seth getting hurt hustling for a loose ball, then there's something wrong there. But I, I don't want to digress here. Tuesday, they have shoot-around, bad shoot-around. Baycott and Harrison Ingram come out and say that there are players that came late, that you know the mentality really wasn't there. And then game time. Before you could even blink your eye, they're down 15 to 2. And they caught back up. They, you know, they they battled and they tied the game and you know, but they didn't win the game. Now, I pulled down keeping a heel, and and you know, my personal opinion, 
doesn't reflect what was written in that article, and, and I'll get to that. But Jordan, on a scale of 1 to 10, how concerned are you about what went down, given all the all the elements and what we've heard? I'm going to say a 2 or a 3. Very low. Very low. Okay. And the reason I'm not concerned – okay, so – the one thing that's a little concerning, and maybe they've done it before, maybe social media is just at a different level. I don't think I've ever seen the players on Franklin like we saw Cormac Ryan or Patterson Wojcik, like in the middle of a crowd. Like we've seen them come back from from Durham and the bus ride by or whatever and celebrate. I don't think I've ever seen the players on Franklin like they were. So that part, and these guys, they, some of these guys. Wait, let me, let me, let me just Go add ahead. to that. When they beat Duke, in K's final home game, I'm pretty sure they were on. They let them off on Franklin. Like okay. they let the whole okay. team off. They, I'm pretty sure. Okay. I'm not on. Don't quote me on that, but I think they that's might what have. happened. Yeah, okay. so I so think that's that might I think be that was like one. the only scenario, but or one of the few. But I also get like Cormac's never been part of the rivalry. Harrison's never been part of the rivalry, so I get that. And they're college kids. Go have fun. That part's not as concerning. The concerning part is the fact that you have guys showing up late. But if we go back in the flashback to pre-Christmas, we had a conversation and we talked about, is this team good enough to turn it on and turn it off when they want to? <laughs> and I had very high reserves about this. There's only one team I've ever been, I've ever seen be able to turn it on and turn it off, and that was 2008, 2009. That team was talented enough. True. It didn't matter. didn't matter when it was. They could turn it on and turn it off. And the, the key there is the team. It, a player might can it, like RJ might can have a lackluster first twenty five minutes and in the last fifteen go off for thirty. But for the collection of the team to go to do that, it's very hard. And it and by going through lackluster practices, going through a lackluster shoot around, showing up late to shoot to a pregame, that shows you underestimating an opponent and thought you could just turn it on when you wanted to and beat somebody on your home floor just coming off a big win. And this this isn't a bad loss. Clemson is a good team. Clemson was a dark horse to win the ACC preseason. They're on the bubble for the NCAA tournament, but they're a good team in my opinion. And they gave Carolina a fight in Lil John. The problem is coming out with a slow start. If you don't come out slow, if you take them seriously, Carolina wins that game. And and maybe it should maybe it was a night the shots weren't falling. But part of that is a mindset. And so I'm not concerned yet. If we get to the point where, hey, these, this win or this loss builds up, maybe. I was a little concerned last last week when they had that hour and 45 minute following Georgia Tech. I've even mentioned on the show, the last time we had players only meeting was after Wake Forest last year, and that didn't go well. So are we having players only meetings just to say we're having players only meetings because it sounds cool on social media? Like, or are we actually being productive? And I think that's where, where we have to get to. I'm not that concerned. I don't think it's a red flag yet. Um, I don't know. We don't know who the players were that showed up late. Hubert Davis said he didn't know about it. That's not necessarily a red flag for me. I'll let you give your take on that. Um, he, yeah, he's the head coach, but pregame, he's probably in his office or preparing for the game or doing some scouting reports. He probably has the assistants checking on where all the players are. So he probably doesn't find out about that till either right at game time or post game. And maybe he didn't want to say it publicly. Um, saying you don't know where, saying you've not heard about it might just be just as bad, but um, I, I'm not concerned. I'll let you give your thoughts on that. So 
you gave it a two, and and I totally get that. That's a a very valid you know response, especially what we've seen from this team. I'm going to go a little bit higher. I'm going to go a four, and here's why. It, it's pretty simple. I, I'm going to start from the beginning. It was it concerning to you at all that Bacon Ingram took to the media to say this about the late practice about being late to practice. I'm I'm not I, I don't think so. Like to me, I'll, I I'll just let you feel like you're taking it. I'll let you go on that, and then I'll, I'll counter. But I don't think so. Like to me, some things should just remain in house and become more of a storyline when they do get out, because then it has a trickling effect. See, Carolina fans, and and you know as well as I do, when a player was late to shoot around or didn't do what they were supposed to do, what happened that game night? They didn't play. They didn't play. So. You look at this team, and now you're hearing, oh, you know, you had guys that were late to shoot around. All of a sudden, Seth Trimble has an injury. And Seth Trimble, and I'm going to put it on the record right now, Seth Trimble is 100% injured. I have a very credible source that told me he is injured. I checked on him. I love Seth Trimble. So I, I checked on him. He is hurt. It is not because he got benched. It is not because he was late, like some people on social media want to say. I'm going to put that out there now. But something like that coming from Armando Bacon, Harrison Ingram gives people the chance to speculate, which causes drama, which causes chaos. This team does not need that chaos. They do not need it. They are the University of North Carolina. They already have everybody coming for them because of the Carolina blue and the legacy. Why add to that? Handle that in-house. And I, I just feel like I know Armando was frustrated and Harrison was frustrated with everything, but just say, you know what? Our mentality wasn't there. We weren't ready to play. Call it a day. Address it in the locker room. Address it with Coach Davis and move on from there. I just felt like saying it to the media felt so last year. Like it felt like that toxic type of feel to it. And I just don't want that to happen. And the other point that I have to make about this whole thing is, yeah, you would expect that from a young team. A young, immature, stupid team. This team is a team full of veterans. Like Zayden High and Elliot Cadeau are really your only underclassmen that are young. Like Seth Trimble's been there. Jalen Washington's been there. Your team is all juniors and seniors and graduate seniors. So that really shouldn't happen with a team that's like this old. I wonder if this is not the first time this has happened. And Ingram and Baycott said, all right, now it's time to say something. Interesting. Did this that could be. Did, did this happen because they had the players only meeting after Georgia Tech? Did this happen pre Georgia Tech? Now that will be a little bit more difficult because obviously road trip, you're probably not going to show up late uh, on on a road trip. But has this happened before and it been a problem? And if it has, then maybe they're like, we're all right. We're going to say something. We're going to call somebody out, and they're not going to call it the, the individual, but they're going to say, hey, we have guys showing up late. But. And Baycott was on the team last year where things got out. So it could also be just the type of leadership, like, hey, we're just laying out there. And who cares? Who knows? And I'm still not as concerned. I, I Again, lose to Miami Saturday, turn around, lose to Syracuse Tuesday or something. These losses start to build up. All right, now we have a problem. But we've heard all year since summer how together this team is, how – the chemistry, they get along, they love each other, they're happy for everyone else's success more than their own. And we still see that on the floor. 
even against Duke, as recent as the Duke game, Baycott created a guy and one over Filipkowski, and the whole team is celebrating with Baycott. That I, I, I'm not concerned. They, they've shown they can beat good teams. Duke is a very good team. Uh, they've hung in there with Kentucky. They beat Oklahoma, who I think is a very good team. Uh, they were in a game with UConn early. I, I would love to see that game now because I think this team has improved drastically. Um, but I'm, I'm not concerned on the chemistry front, on the team front end, that my – honestly, the bigger concern for me is on the floor with the offensive side of the ball. And uh saw this tweet today, Greg Barnes inside Carolina. Since January 1st, Carolina ranks 253rd nationally in effective field goal percentage. And that is not good. So no. while the defense – while the, there's about 360-ish teams in college basketball, so you're in the bottom third of that. And and you're ranked number resident. three in the country. <laughs> now, <laughs> the, the large majority of Carolina's success has come off the defensive improvements that we've seen and got them the number four or fifth in the country in Kimpom in defensive efficiency. And the offense efficiency is still top 25. But since January 1st, according to a source, is – that in effective field goal percentage, which isn't the same as just uh, offensive efficiency, it's just field goal percentage, and they're 253. That's not good. So figuring out how we get good shots, and that my concern is on the floor, not off of it. And um, part of the problem against Clemson was the slow start. 15 to 2 was a problem, but a large majority of that was an 0 of 7 or 1 of 8 start from the field on the offensive side of the ball when against Pitt earlier in the year they started they didn't go they went six minutes without point but the defensive effort was there to keep it a six point game against Clemson that same defense intensity wasn't there Hubert Davis even said in the first timeout he even said post game the first timeout was we can't talk about anything basketball related until we talk about the effort and intensity and that goes back to showing up late, mindset, those type of things. But it's not in the world. I, I don't think the sky's falling, not yet. Well, they're still 10 and 2 in the conference, first place. But there are concerns, but nothing that are alarming yet. Yeah. I think I, I think if you're looking at it from a grand perspective, you have to look at the whole picture and be like, you know what? They're still 10 and 2. They've been really good in ACC play. This is still the same team. This is a very talented team. And, and in my opinion, I think they're one of the best teams in the country. I really do. The problem is their two losses recently have been not because the other team was better than them, but because the other team was more ready to play. And Carolina wasn't ready to play in either game. Let's call a spade a spade. They didn't come out ready. They, they didn't play well. And they're not, like you said, they're not like those teams of the past where you could just flip a switch and, and turn it on. So for me, I'm a little concerned in terms of, you know, coming off the loss. But you know how you could rectify it? Go into Coral Gables and, and slap around Miami. Like that's how, you know, you have to have that mentality. Like, you know what? This isn't this isn't Carolina basketball. Like we got to figure it out. We got to step it up. And that's the way to do it. You have a perfect opportunity coming Saturday to, to make that happen. Some things on the offensive side because you touched on it. Number one, Cormac Ryan has to learn how to stop shooting when he's not on. If you're not on, stop shooting. It, it was just getting to the point where if my life was on the line and Cormac Ryan had to try to make a three last night, I wasn't going to survive. He was just chucking him up. 
it kind of felt like a rec league basketball, like when they were shooting it and they, nobody's making them, but everybody's like, all right, Johnny, good job. It's okay. It's fine. We're, we're good. I, I don't know how you could go one he, for 10 from the court. He, did, and, he did have the one. He caught the ball in the corner, had an open look at three, and opted to pump fake and drive in and hit a floater. It was his only made field goal of the night, but he passed on three to get a closer look at the basket and made it. Hey, so, how about the missed layup? Yeah, that he ru- he feels like he's rushing. I don't know why. It feels like he is not setting his feet on nothing. Even the layup, he it felt like ru- it felt really rushed. And so, just all around, either stop shooting or take your time and get set. Um, and I I do think Cormac. We know he's a he's been known as a streaky shooter during his college career, but he is known as a respectable three point shooter. Teams are still going to guard him. They're not going to just say, "Hey, go shoot!" Like Against Duke, Elliot Cadeau, they were like, shoot it from wherever you want to. And nobody's doing that to Cormac Ryan. He has earned the respect. And so it's just a matter of making the shots and taking your time and setting your feet. So hopefully eventually those start to fall. So before I get to the next offensive topic, I saw this on social media and I had to ask your opinion on it. If Seth Trimble's injury is not bad, like say he gets back in the near future, do you consider starting him over Cormac? No. Okay. Well, I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why. Because I, I so a big part of the Clemson last night, of Clemson game last night. Yeah, Carolina didn't come out with energy, but if Seth Trimble is available, Seth Trimble brings you that energy off the bench. He gets guys going. He's on the floor after loose balls. He's in the opposing. He's in the. He's guarding Joe Girard, who had a great night last night. He. He's making life difficult on the defense end, and he occasionally provides you good points. He had some big points against Duke. Trimble brings so much energy off the bench. He's not somebody I want starting. He's somebody I want to come in in the at the first media timeout if the team is a little lackluster like the, but they were to start start last night. So I'd rather have that energy off the bench, that six man mentality, and I, that's where I would keep him. And I think he's better suited off the bench. Some guys are better starters. Some guys are better off the bench. We've not seen Trimble start much in his career, I, but I think I don't want to find out this year. I, I want to keep him in that role. He's doing well in that role. He's He takes quality shots. He knows his role is to guard the other team's best defender, get a rebound here and there, and if you're open, take a shot. But – no, I do not want to see him start. I have to agree on, with you on that. I love the intensity he brings off the bench. Yeah, when he goes to the cup, uh, now you kind of are like, Seth just dunked the ball, but he, he likes to be crafty with it. It, it. It's fine. Just make your shots, please. Like, that's all I care about. Don't get hurt because, you know, when you go to the rim like that and you're a smaller guy, you're going to get beat up a little bit. But kind of transitioning now, Duke kind of gave the blueprint. We've seen a little bit more of this recently. Teams are sagging off of Ellie Cadeau because they don't want him to beat them in yep. terms of getting to the cup. And you know what? Can you blame him? Because if, if you're looking at the team on the floor, you're going to dare Cadeau to shoot until he proves he can make some. If you're Hubert Davis, how do you rectify that at this point? Like, what, what possibilities are there where you could be like, all right, Elliot's not going to shoot there, but we got to try to avoid other teams from being able to do that. Cadeau is – I don't know if I've seen Cadeau make a shot outside of a layup in a very long time. And the saying knock on Cadeau, 
It, he made a three he just, in he made a three recently. I don't remember what game it was, but he made a three. He made a three. Uh maybe Louisville. Uh it's no, his last three came against Charleston Southern. Wow. So Cadeau is four of twenty-five from three point range this year. Sixteen percent. Charleston Southern was what, December 29th? Ninth. Yeah. It's been a month. It's been over a month. But the more concerning factor is he can't even hit a mid-range jumper right now. He's shooting 42% from the field in general. And most of those makes are layups. Um, yeah. But credit to Cadeau. I, I had our on keeping it hill on Monday, I believe. Uh, and originally gave credit to Hubert Davis. Hubert Davis came out and uh, on the Carolina pod and said, or on uh, his coach's show, and said it was credit to Cadeau. He came up with it on his own. But – Cadeau realized he was not making the shots. Duke was doubling off of Cadeau. And so, as a result, Cadeau didn't have a defender set a screen for R.J. Davis. Happened twice. And both times, R.J. got make made three-pointer off of it because there was nobody to switch on R.J. The questions will be how do teams – and this is now on film. So, teams know this. So, teams are going to know we can double off of Cadeau on the Baycott because they're still trying to do that on the catch. But we still got to have somebody to switch on the Cadeau if the screen is being set, because you can't let leave RJ open. That's obviously the goal. The goal is to guard RJ and Paycott. So how do they do that? The blueprint has been set, but the blueprint has also been set that Carolina will counter by screening away from Cadeau. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a great chess match down the stretch. How do teams guard RJ and Baycott? And then what do you do with Cadeau? Because while Cadeau is not doing well offensively, and some I saw some people on Twitter talking about he shouldn't be in the game last night and things like that, you cannot take him off the floor. He is too valuable to the offense as far as taking care of the basketball. Carolina, their last two games has had only 11 turnovers. I think 11 turnovers combined. They had six against Clemson and five against Duke. And three against Clemson were on three straight possessions. So in a tie game down the stretch. Like you don't turn the ball over, you get the lead, you might win the game even without showing up. But taking care of the basketball is so critical, and Cadeau is such an important factor of that. Even against Duke, I think he was plus nine when he was on the floor, and we were even with him off the floor. So he's so valuable, you can't take him off the floor despite his poor, poor quality shooting. He needs to get back. We've not seen him drive to the rim either lately either. I don't think we've seen him really get to the rim since probably Florida State. So – Against Georgia Tech, you didn't see it a lot. You didn't really see it against Duke. Didn't see it all last night. He was one of nine last night. So, need to get back to doing what was working. But then also, at least he at least he understands. Hey, I'm not having my shot fall. Kind of like in the same situation Cormac is, and he has some shots against Duke that went in and came out. That if he makes them, then you're like, oh, maybe you get some confidence. Um. But yeah, the the high the high basketball IQ to realize, hey, I'm not shooting well. Let me get RJ open on screen was that's high level stuff. With Cadell, I feel like the biggest enemy is himself, mm -hmm. and here's why: he is a freshman. We've documented it. Now he should be a senior in high school. He's very young, but what I have observed, especially of late, he is impacted by his foul trouble. And if he gets called for a bad foul, it seems like he's having trouble shaking it. And I understand. 
there were some blatant bad calls against my guy. I'm, I, I know that. But in that type of atmosphere, in that type of setting, you have to have a very short memory. And for him, I feel like it does impact him a little bit. And could that be hurting him offensively? Maybe. But I think he's too good of a basketball player to let that impact him. And he's going to be fine. I'm not worried about Elliot Cadell. I think he's got all the talent in the world. It's just a matter of, I think it's part of the growing pains. And that's what we all forget. Like, this dude's a freshman. He's on the court with mostly juniors and seniors. Like, you're going to have that thing. Now, the other question I have for those people who are on Twitter, who were the Twitter coaches that were like, oh, I'll take Cadeau up. Who are we going to put in? Seth wasn't available. Paxson had a had a good game. I give him credit, but are you going to really give those minutes to Paxson? Hubert Davis wouldn't go big with Jalen Withers at the four or Jalen Washington at the five or Jalen Washington at the four, like in spurts, even though Clemson had two big guys on the floor. So who's going to go in? Even Paxson played 22 minutes. So, and he had a great night. Uh, for somebody to step in and place a set triple, Paxson provided you about as much as he could have provided you, and you'd be okay with it. What this team is lacking is a backup point guard, a true backup point guard. Uh, Cedric was not a backup point guard. Passing was just not a backup point guard. Jalen Withers ain't a backup point guard. RJ has played point guard in his career, but he is not a point guard. He's a shooting guard. You might call him a combo guard, but he is better off the ball. And with teams guarding RJ the way they're going to guard him, he's better off the ball because you need to run him off as many screens as possible to get him in a position to catch and shoot. That's when he's the best at and most efficient. So taking Cadeau out, like you said, doesn't solve anything. There's nobody else to put in. Uh, so, again, the Twitter coaches need to just stay on Twitter and need to – I mean, I got, I got people on Twitter saying Armando Baker had a bad game against Clemson. I, I don't know when 24-13 and 13 is a bad game. And he was 7-13. It wasn't like he took 26 shots. He was 7 – he took 13 shots, got 24 points and 13 rebounds. He's had two amazing games, and Armando Baycott haters are still trying to say he wasn't. He hasn't had two good games. Like they just need to stay silent. And the drop off, I think, the drop off from the first string to the second string is still it's getting more evident the deeper we go. And we we talked about it last week. The bench needs the rotation needs to be shortened. You kind of saw it last night a little bit. Jalen Washington came in and they're late, and he had turnover. He threw a ball. 100 yards, the length of a football field to nobody. I don't know what he was doing there. That was a turnover. Carolina's tied or down two in that situation. He had a rebound, that an offense rebound opportunity. Well, off his hands, bounced, and he just stood there and looked at it. Uh, don't and, forget the volleyball not, one where instead of just grabbing the ball, he swatted down and it went to Clemson. <laughs> right. I mean, so – and I'm not trying to pick on Jalen Washington. I think he has a lot no, of – No, not at all. But the drop-off from Armando Baycott to Jalen Washington is – has become more evident the deeper we're going into the season. The drop-off between Elliot Cadeau and Seth Trimble or Pat Wojcik as a ball handler is very obvious. And Trimble can handle the ball, but not to the level that he can distribute the way that Cadeau can. And despite the offensive shooting struggles, I think Cadeau still has to stay in the game. He's your facilitator. I think the concern offensively is getting Cormac Ryan going, not Elliot Cadeau going. Because if Cormac Ryan gets going, then you have Ryan, Ingram, Baycott, and Davis. Cadeau can just worry about finding one of those four guys and shoot, and 
he could get back in transition or try to get off his rebound. But the the concern is not near as high on the Cadeau front, for, for me at least. Yeah, it's just a matter of figuring out ways that you're not getting, you know, the, Elliot on an island and they're daring him to shoot. You want to try to the, avoid that as much as possible. But if you think about it, their second best ball handler is Harrison Ingram. And you don't want um, Ingram yeah. handling the ball. He's in like a Theo Pinson type situation where he can kind of be that big guy that can like, or bigger athletic guard that can, he can post you up. He can pass out of it. The the one thing I'll touch on, you touched on it with Cadeau is the fouling. And part of it is mental and being a freshman learning how if you don't get a call, don't retaliate because they're going to get the retaliation call. Now, I have went back and watched the play with Chase Hunter in the first half where Hunter clearly extends his arm. I mean, it is a clear extend of the arm, and Cadeau flies like six feet across the floor. He flew out no of the foul. Dean Dome and then came There's back. no foul. It was off the ball, but the official stand right there, and the official goes, and I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, there was nothing there. And there's two officials that saw it, and neither one called it. And then – the camera angle that I've seen, there's not a great view because I think either Elon Shefflin or PJ Hall were was saying a screen, but Cadeau, a uh, hunter went around the screen and then they called Cadeau for the foul on the same same play like three seconds later. And the only thing I can see is that he has his left hand on Hunter's back, just like guarding it, like just chasing him. And that's not a foul. But then the frustration from Cadeau, and I can see as a player, is that in the second half, Cadeau drives. It extends his arm, but doesn't extend near as much as Hunter did in the first half. And the sad time was on Gerard, so it's not even the same player. But he gets called for a charge on a drive. And it was a foul. But as a freshman, you're like, that just happened to me in the first half, and I didn't get that call. So uh, I'm sure Hubert and his staff has sent that to the ACC, who need to do something about their officials. We won't go in, down that rabbit hole. We'll be here all night. Oh, hey, how about that foul on, on Harrison Ingram's back? That was so some... that has been explained to me as a foul because he's not in legal guarding position, which I can understand. He's not in legal guarding position. I but mean, yeah, but he turned to box out because it appeared. I don't know who the pass was. I know the, the pass was to Shefflin. Whoever made the pass went up like it was gonna be a floater, and then he dropped it off for Shefflin. So Ingram had turned. So while he's not in the legal guarding position, Shefflin ran him over, essentially. So I'm like, the consistency in the ACC just is mind-blowing. But from a Cadeau standpoint, you have to keep your composure. Georgia Tech, he fouled out, got 5,009 minutes. Uh, two and a half of those were actual fouls. The third, the two, two were. The third one was a good job from the offensive player selling the foul. The other two were just bonkers. And nonsense. But at this point, at that level, officials watch film. They know what's going on. When they're watching film before a game, they're saying, hey, number two, watch him. He fouls a lot. Or he gets a little handsy. So, uh, and the coaching staff probably knows that. And they're probably being told this same thing by the conference. So, they have to turn around and say, hey, Elliot, watch your hands here. Or make sure you're not doing this. This is what they're looking for. 
So he did get away with one. He uh, there was a turnover in the second half that went. I don't Hunter maybe. Oh yeah, he over. slapped the hand instead of the ball. He, sla- he, he slapped the hand and and they didn't call it. He did get away with that one. So there's a good example that he is being handsy and getting a lot of contact in some situations. That's probably the first one he's got away with. But overall, he just he just has to grow up and mature a little bit, and that will come. But uh. You still gotta have him on the floor, and and he has to mature because Carolina needs him on the floor to be efficient offensively to limit those turnovers, and and that kept him in the game against Clemson, not turning the basketball over, and then they got down to the final four minutes and decided to turn over three straight times. Yeah, it, I, I mean overall, it it's one of those games and, where yeah, you're mad, you're mad it happened, you're you're upset with how it happened, um, but I think going into Saturday against Miami, you, you know, you kind of turn the page and be like, you know what? It's a learning lesson. Like you say it all the time. Nobody goes 20 and no in ACC play. Uh, it's one of my favorite quotes that you, that you come up with is, you know, it doesn't happen. The best record was 16 and four. Best record since we went to 20 game schedule is 16 and four. And I'll say this and go off the Clemson game. Carolina was tied 70, fall all the way back from 16 down, tied it at 70. With a little, with around four minutes to go, if Carolina doesn't turn it over on those three possessions with the tie score and takes the lead and wins that game, I think we have a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is guys think they can still show up late to practice or show up late to shoot around. That might, if they can figure it out, that might end up being a good loss and saying, hey, we can't just turn it on when we want to. If you win that game, then you have guys thinking that way the rest of the year. And yeah, you don't need that. So again, you just said I've said you're not going 20 0. You're you're likely not even going 18 and 2. I, I think 16 and 4 wins the league. It's one every year for the last three, four years. So you have another game or two you're probably gonna lose. And it's probably gonna be the road game at Virginia because we hate playing up there. But you have two back to back road games against two okay. Miami's a really good opponent. They went to the Final Four last year. Syracuse is kind of – they're going to be looking for blood just like Clemson was because we just embarrassed them in Chapel Hill a few weeks ago. And and they, they lost Benny Williams, but they're still going to be ready to play. And so you have back-to-back road games, another quick turnaround on the road, Saturday Miami with a 4 o'clock tip. So you're not going to have – you're not going to have Corey Gables until probably 7 or 8 o'clock. And you got to go all the way to New York on the other side of the coast for a Tuesday night, 7 o'clock game, another Tuesday night game. So don't want to lose on Tuesday night for the third straight week. And then and then you get a, a Virginia Tech team that uh, has been playing pretty well as of late, and uh, Tyler Nick will be back in the Smith Center. So you have three games coming up before you get a week break. And I feel like it's very crucial to win at least two of these and definitely win the Miami game because you don't want to drop two in a row. So, uh, if you go three and zero, great. Then you get ready for the, that final five game stretch down the down the stretch with Virginia, Miami State, Notre Dame, and Duke. And you kind of need to break it up in that segment. These three games and those five, and then let's let's see what happens. One game at a time. You're playing Duke mentality. Every game, come in with that mindset. Go out, go get it, and you know what? Shake this off. Get back on track. Get everybody lovey-dovey in the locker room if there's any issues with coming late. Get to get the shoot around on time and call it a day. But again, we're always on time. 
right. me and you, we're you know, we're all on time. And again, we'll be back next week to talk about, you know, what happened against Miami and what happened against Syracuse. And I'm very disappointed to know Benny Williams because when I was in the Dean Dome for that game and Benny Williams threw his jersey into the crowd during the timeout, it was magical. So I'm there, I'm upset about Benny Williams. Good guy. Good guy. A little bit of trouble. You know, they dismissed him. It's, it is what it is. But you know what, Benny? You gave me a great moment to remember, my guy. And I, I hope the best for you. And I hope that it wasn't too bad of, a, of an issue why they kicked you off the team or, dis, or dismissed you. I don't want to be that guy. But, again, you know what? We'll take it one game at a time. And, and until you get to hear from us next time, check out all our stuff on Keeping a Heel. You know, we, we got all the content for you there. If, if we start to panic, you'll know it on there. And then you can hear why on the show next week. So, again, it's been another episode of the Talking Heels podcast. That's Jordan Fools. I'm Nick Delahanty. Tar Heel fans, the sky is not falling yet. Breathe. Don't In panic. and out. In and out. Don't panic. It's all going to be okay. Don't we panic. promise you. We, we wouldn't lie to you. If it was time to panic, we would let you know. Jordan would let you know. Jordan would Jordan would be the guy. Okay. So until next time, go heels. Big one Saturday. Got to take care of business. And that's it. Go heels.